Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. I'm with Daniel Stryker and Ronnie Islam of Bike Grid Now in Chicago. Hi, Daniel and Ronnie. Hey, Nick. How are you? Good. Hello, Thanks for Nick. coming Glad on. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Bike Grid Now has been really putting out a lot of events, rides, actions, strategies. It seems like you really have a lot of energy. I thought it'd be good to just have you talk for a little while between yourselves about what you're doing and what it's like. So can I hand it over to you? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, it's kind of crazy thinking about where we started, when we started, how everything got started and where we're at now. Daniel, do you remember what your first bike jam was? Yeah, I do. It was a mega jam. It was the first one that I think y'all did two jams the same day. And the first one, the morning one was at 8am outside City Hall for a City Hall meeting. Yeah. And then there was a after work one in my neighborhood, which I think it was either like a Lakeview or Lincoln Park jam. And I'd seen y'all on, I think, Twitter before I got involved and I wanted to show up. And the morning jam was so energizing. I got to go in the afternoon because the vibe... I don't know, like it's a protest, but it's also a little bit of a party. It felt kind of like critical mass, but it felt focused. It made me feel like a thing I could keep doing within the bike community where I could see how it could make a difference. I actually remember that day that you mentioned because we did the city council jam and then I had received a message from, I don't remember exactly who it was, but they were like, hey, you might want to reach out to older person Michelle Smith's office because they think you're coming to Lincoln Park in the 43rd Ward to protest the inaction around the Dickens Avenue Greenway. And for folks who aren't plugged into the bike politics in Chicago, the Dickens Avenue Greenway is this bike infrastructure project that was supposed to go into Lincoln Park. And then there's a lot of NIMBY resistance, and it still hasn't been started, even though there's a lot of community support for it. And there was recently a street blog article or an expose kind of thing into this lawyer in the community who's been like threatening the DOT with lawsuits and stuff and like trying to block this project. But anyway, they thought we were going to go out there to protest the Dickens Avenue Greenway, which we weren't actually. It was just another bike jam that we're going to be doing. But yeah, so I do remember that day quite well. well And I think that's a thing we see a lot in Chicago and probably elsewhere with the resistance to bike infrastructure is we can usually name all the people who are resisting because it's a few loud, influential, often wealthy or powerful folks who make a lot of noise. You can't name everybody who wants to see the bike infrastructure because it's just about everybody else. And I think what's cool about these jams is you see that. You see everybody show up who wants there to be a bike grid. And as we're passing people and we're telling them we want a bike grid, they could kind of see what it would look like because we're all there biking. I did want to ask you, Ronnie, because I joined then and kind of got more involved slowly. I know the last time you were on Bike Talk, things were just kind of starting up and the jams have grown a lot since then. I think the biggest jam was maybe twice as big. Do you want to talk about that, how it's different now than before I was around? Yeah, for sure. So my first bike jam that I went to was the first bike jam. And we had nine folks at that first bike jam. And now a couple of weeks ago, we had a bike jam on Belmont Avenue, where they're doing a resurfacing project that isn't including any kind of protected bike infrastructure. And then actually the painted bike lane kind of ends halfway through the project. Anyway, there's a whole big thing about that. And that one had 180 folks. But the spirit of the bike jams are kind of exactly the same. It's kind of just folks coming out and biking really slowly and drawing attention to the need for bike infrastructure. What has changed significantly is the community that's kind of risen up around the bike jam, the bike grid, and now this new thing that we're doing, the bike buses. The community has just grown. When we first started, we had four or five core organizers just chatting in a Facebook Messenger group chat. And now we've got maybe like close to 40, I think. I haven't checked Slack recently, but 
I can actually check really quickly. But yeah, I think it's like 40 folks who are now organizing all these types of events, actions. Yeah, 39. 39 folks who are helping to organize all across Chicago. And it's been incredible growth. And we're like in new places, doing new types of things. We are doing our first bike bus from Hyde Park on Thursday for Jamapalooza, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And we've done a couple of bike jams in Bridgeport, Pilsen, doing one soon in South Loop. So really growing both people-wise, action-wise, and then bandwidth. Having all these new folks join has allowed us to do things that we would not have been able to do without them, including all the politicking stuff that we've been doing. We're putting a platform together for politicians and candidates for mayor and alder person in Chicago to like kind of sign on to. We're not endorsing them, but they're endorsing us. So kind of like flipping the tables there. But yeah, I think the people is what has changed the most in the growth. But the spirit of the bike jam, spirit of bike grid now hasn't changed. Well, yeah. And part of that with the people is I've been able to attend fewer jams lately because we're spreading further out into the city and I can't get there after work in time, which is awesome. When it started, it was kind of the cluster of neighborhoods that I think the organizers started in, which included my neighborhoods. And now it's far reaching enough that not everybody can get to every jam because they're all over the city, wherever the people that have joined up and the people that they've recruited and brought in want to make stuff happen. Yeah, I was visiting Chicago for a couple of weeks. I've been in and out of the city, but I was visiting and we had a bike jam in Armour Square and it was like an hour long bike ride for me. And I was like, this is so far and I don't want to have to show up to all these bike jams. And we have a lot of folks who kind of joined from the early days and clustered in the north side of the city. But as we're expanding to the west and south side, it's difficult and also not really practical to have folks biking all the way down there for these actions. But it's okay because we've kind of grown naturally and have organizers in other parts of the city who can lead these jams and bike buses. I think the cool thing is that we've kind of developed this infrastructure on like how we grow and then how we have new folks join. And it really empowers people to kind of do their own thing as part of like Bike Grid now. And the logistics keep us honest, because from the beginning, I remember one of the early discussions that we had, and I've heard you say this over and over again, is we're not parachuting into neighborhoods, creating traffic jams, and then leaving that nobody there wanted. It has to be that people there want to fight for this vision in their neighborhood. And then that's when the jam happens there. Yeah, absolutely. I think this started kind of north, northwest side of Chicago, and then we got lots of visibility. And now we have folks reaching out to us from southwest side in Bridgeport and asking us to partner with them and bring the bike jam to them, essentially. But yeah, we absolutely do not want to just bring a bunch of folks into other parts of Chicago, do something that we think is important, and then get negative feedback from the community. Certainly not something we want to do. And it's unfortunate that Chicago is as segregated as it is. So it's super important that community leaders, community organizers, activists, advocates all throughout Chicago kind of like co-sign onto our vision rather than us just like showing up. So I want to jump back a second to the point you mentioned about having politicians endorse us or really endorse a bike grid as a policy, right? What we're talking about when we say they endorse a bike grid is actually specific enough policy-wise that it'll be real. But I think it's also broad enough that folks who are running on the idea of implementing bike infrastructure for the city would support it. The bike grid now vision 10% of Chicago streets, which is 450 something miles, should be bike prioritized with a 10 mile per hour speed limit by May, 2024. And we're talking about residential streets there. And I think that speed limit is for cars, right? So yeah, if you're a bike coming through, you can kind of go a natural biking speed, but that turns it into more of a shared street where bikes can come in and where pedestrians can use it. And you don't have to worry about traffic flying through. And specifically in order to make that happen in Illinois, we actually have to change the Illinois state vehicle code to allow for speed limits. I'm not sure, Ronnie, do you know where they can go down to now? It's pretty high, isn't it? With the minimum. So it can't be any lower than 20 miles an hour. So I think the city speed limit is 30 miles an hour, but the commissioner for CDOT can do like a traffic study or something and then request city council bring a specific stretch to 
20 or 25 miles an hour, but the commissioner needs special permission from city council to do that. And we also know 20 miles an hour, the way that speed limits are enforced means people are driving 25, 30, right? And that's a whole other issue right. in Chicago. But Yeah, um, yeah. I know you'll get to this, but if one thing is a speed limit, but then the other thing is design speeds and operating speeds, which are sometimes not anywhere close to the posted speed limit. And we see that. I don't think I have any idea what the speed limit of just about any street that I use is. I know how fast cars can blaze past me on my bike, but you don't get a sense that there's a particular relationship between those things. So if you're a municipal candidate, we need you to support something that would update the Chicago code to allow for 10 mile an hour speed limits. Is that the biggest barrier, the speed limit stuff? And then from there, once that's legal, we can kind of update streets for free and then everything else makes it better and easier. Yeah, it's kind of like right now, even if you wanted streets with 10 mile per hour speed limits and infrastructure to go along with it, we can't do it because of the vehicle code. And I think our laws should reflect our values. CDOT had a shared streets program in the earlier part of the COVID-19 pandemic, which they've now completely dismantled using that temporary infrastructure. And it's wild. 4,000 people submitted a survey and 66% of the people submitting a survey wanted Chicago to create more shared streets. And that doesn't tell the whole story because it's not just that they created this program and the program ended. And then we found out that everybody wanted it. They created this program and all the shared streets near me were dismantled well before their end dates because people nearby complained. So the feedback on the program was after a program ended that didn't even run its course because when local complaints happened, they just dismantled the streets right away. Yeah, and it's that vocal minority. In the survey results, 66% of people said yes, 34% said no, but I'm sure the 34% of folks who are driving or I don't even know what the issues were. I think when I was listening to some of the Dickens Avenue Greenway community meetings, it was drivers who were like, but I'm confused. I don't know what to do around these temporary barriers. It's supposed to make it a little more difficult to drive because it's supposed to slow you down. That's kind of the point of it all. But that vocal minority probably led to the demise of the Shared Streets program. And we want to bring it back in a more permanent, concrete way. Essentially, the bike grid streets are just shared streets. So that's the big piece, right? First, make it legal. And then the city can start to actually redesign these 10-mile-an-hour streets, adding stuff like planters, temporary barriers, the stuff you mentioned, to actually make it possible. And then to your point, we want to require the city, specifically CDOT, the Department of Transportation, to listen to people, to have more frequent meetings of this new mobility collaborative they've created, which has been disappointing. They don't meet very much. And when they do, they're a little bit patronizing to the people they invite. Yeah, I think it's like quarterly right now. So we would want CDOT to increase the frequency to monthly and include status updates on the rollout of the bike grid throughout the city. Because one thing that CDOT, Chicago Department of Transportation, kind of gets away with is the fact that there's no accountability. But people can call their alders. They know how to reach their alders. City council meets every single month and folks can give public comment. But... CDOT has no accountability. If you go to their website, it's very difficult to find an email address. It's kind of no accountability. Right now, we do bike jams once a week. And then also on Wednesdays, we have two bike buses. And Daniel helps out a lot leading one of those bike buses. And the bike buses are essentially getting a bunch of people together and getting them somewhere they need to get to. Wednesday mornings, we offer two bus routes from Northwest and then Northside communities, and then bring people into the loop, CBD, Central Business District. And then we pick people up along the way. We've got bus stops, we've got a schedule, a route, and then we allow people to track the bus and we bring them into the loop. So we do that on Wednesday mornings. And then for Jamapalooza, we're having one big bike jam in the loop and then running six bike buses from Northwest and South sides of Chicago and bringing people in all together and converging on the loop. Jamapalooza. Wow. That sounds huge. Yeah. It's a logistical puzzle that we get to solve. What are the numbers you're expecting? A couple hundred people. Usually we get about 15 to 20 RSVPs for our bike jams. And then we usually get a hundred people show up, I would say. So 15 RSVPs, hundred people show up. 
I checked today, we have over 50 RSVPs. So I think the RSVP to show up ratio might be a little closer, but I think we're going to have a couple hundred folks show up. I think one of the cool things about the bike bus that's made attendance really consistent and growing every week is that people need to commute. And a lot of the people that commute on their bikes choose not to have a car or can't have a car or have used to use the transit system and have given up on it because of ghost cuts that have happened in COVID. So they need to commute. And we've created what feels like the safest way to do that as long as it's Wednesday morning and you're commuting at the time and on one of our routes. So I think that really has driven attendance is that unlike our jam protest, this is a protest that delivers. It delivers the bike ride to you in that moment for that one commute once a week. And so the way that has grown has been really nice and consistent. I think the jams depend more on, are we in the neighborhood that you want to jam and can you get there? And what are your alternatives for something to do after work? But I'm hoping because we're in just about every neighborhood we've jammed in or somewhere nearby for Jamapalooza, that is going to draw a lot of people because there'll be something convenient to them and they'll want to see kind of the big convergence downtown. I think it's going to be cool. Yeah, sounds great for World Car Free Day. And this will have happened by the time this show airs. So we'll have to check that. So you can check our estimates. (laughs) And so where do you see all this going? Yeah, so I think some folks had a couple concerns about, oh, well, what are you going to do in Chicago winter when folks don't usually bike? And I think we've shown as a organization an ability to adapt and do new things. I think we've got lots of cool ideas on different direct actions we can do in the winter, even if there's snow or ice on the ground, hint, hint, and then maybe mm-hmm. less biking, more walking jams kind of thing. So we've got a few tricks up our sleeves and being able to focus more on the politics side. We do lots of fun, cool rides like the jams and buses, but there's a political motive, I guess, to everything we're doing. So we'll be able to focus a little bit more on that in the winter. I know you had a mayoral candidate on your ride, Cam Buckner, and apparently it happens all the time now, alder people. Yeah, last Wednesday, I think, or two Wednesdays ago, we had a bike jam with another alder candidate and so many folks have reached out to us. We think we're going to have to stop doing one-offs with the alders and just inviting all the candidates in a specific ward and saying, hey, we're doing an 11th ward aldermanic candidate jam. If you want to show up, you should show up kind of thing. And I think that speaks volumes to folks who care about safe streets infrastructure is who shows up for them when they want them to come out. Yeah. And I think candidates would love to be the candidate that supports a bike grid, but we would love for it to be table stakes and for them to be competing more on who has the best ideas or the best capacity to implement it. So I think opening these things up and saying, we want everybody here, let's jam together and let's be collaborative and maybe a tiny bit competitive. We could get some really cool results out of that. Well, maybe you should come on next week. Maybe. (laughs) We're hoping to make waves. Well, I think you have made some waves. Thank you. It feels good. I do want to say that the thing that pulled me into this versus all the other bike activism, though, is it's so specifically targeted. And we're talking about a bike grid versus the infinite list of bicycle and transit and general kind of urbanist improvements that we're all hoping for and not seeing progress on. It's targeted and it's timely with what's happening in the city now where it really seems like people and electeds are ready to make moves on it. So that's one of the satisfying elements that I think draws people into this and helps them stick around. That's interesting. Yeah. To really focus on something actionable. So now you're just hoping everybody who comes to the table will want the same thing and you just want to see who has the best way of getting there. Yeah. And I think increasingly with what's happening in the city, with the traffic violence that we're seeing, with the state that public transit is in, with just the general boom in biking and the awareness and activity that we and others are generating. I think those politicians, the ones that join us and the ones that don't are feeling more pressure than ever to take action on this. There's a lot of alder people leaving city council that haven't been responsive. And it seems like a lot of the people that are vying to come in are looking to be very responsive to these issues. So I think there's a lot of folks doing the work. We're one of the groups, but I also think the timing is right. And I will say for the alders listening to this podcast, a lot of folks win or lose a aldermanic election in Chicago just by a couple thousand votes, like two or three. 
So if there's one issue where there's a lot of residents rallying behind something like state streets infrastructure or the bike grid, it'll be really easy to sway how an election swings one way or the other. So I think it's going to be important for the survivability and electability of candidates to, to really get their stuff together when it comes to state streets infrastructure. Yeah. All right. Next time, let's bring some of these alders on Bike Talk. Sounds good. Love it. All right. Daniel and Ronnie, let's keep in touch. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having us, Nick. Yeah, thank thank you. you, Nick. You're still listening to Bike Talk. That was Bike Grid Now. Another group advocating for Chicago's safe streets is Better Bike Chicago. Here are Michael Podgers, Kyle Lucas, and Jeremy Frisch. Hi, I'm uh, Jeremy Frisch. I've uh, I was born in Chicago and I, you know, just started noticing how many people were getting injured and, and killed bikers. And when I moved back here in 2020 and live in Lakeview now, uh, living so close to the lake and having it cut off by uh, Lakeshore Drive, the highway kind of destroys our lakefront. And I have a two-year-old now, and it's my hope for him that when he's older, he can actually you know, enjoy the lakefront and enjoy getting around our neighborhood where we we don't own a car, where um, we bike everywhere, we take transit, and just having that freedom to move around and not fear for his life and to just be able to enjoy this beautiful lakefront we have without the scourge of cars, both the pollution and the noise pollution, uh, which was really evident to me when, when I did uh, bike the drive just how quiet it was. So that's kind of how I got involved uh, and and what what I'm trying to work on as as an advocate um, and volunteer with with Better Streets. In order to bring attention to the fact that you have this this highway fronting, as Kyle put it, one of the world's most valuable resources during Bike the Drive, when there were no cars, you recorded the sound and then compared it to the sound with cars. Do you want to talk about all that? We we got to the lakefront, you know, around 830 or something, and you could immediately just as we were approaching it, you could feel the the quiet um, and, you know, hear hear sounds that we never hear, like children laughing, um, birds chirping, um, things that you just can't hear. And, you know, we bike on the lakefront trail a, f- a fair amount and. I can't, um, I have a, a cargo bike and my, my two-year-old will, will sit in front and I can't, when I'm, when we get to the lakefront trail, I can't even talk to him because it, it, it's too loud. Um, so on our way back, um, we really enjoyed bike to drive, except for the part where we got, you know, poured on. Um, but, uh, then it cleared up and we were on our way back and we were about to get off, um, and, and and go back home. And I didn't, uh, I wanted to stop for a second and just, you know, appreciate, um, and, and sit with the the quiet. So I, uh, I posted up around, um, the AIDS garden and I just was enjoying it and realized, you know, maybe I should, I, I looked at my watch cause it has a decibel, um, meter on it. And, you know, maybe I should record, um, and just, kind of compare what what the sound is and then come back later maybe and and see um the difference so um i started recording that and you know it was that around 50 decibels which is the sound of a a a quiet refrigerator so you know barely audible when i came back just a couple hours later and bike the drive was over um, I was seeing, you know, sound at uh, over 70 decibels. Um, which the CDC uh, says that having, uh, being exposed to sound over 70 decibels for, you know, long periods of time can cause hearing damage. And this is on one of our city's most beautiful parks and a trail with that tens of thousands of, of, of people are using and we're exposing them not only to the pollution um, but uh, or the, the exhaust, but the this noise pollution that is damaging hearing, um, let alone just, you know, 
making our our lakefront less less um, pleasant to be in. There's a plan for Lakeshore Drive, and your decibel level experiment was to bring attention to what it's like without cars there. And Lake Michigan, I'd never thought about this before you said it, Kyle, but it's what one of the world's largest bodies of fresh water. Yeah. So, um, so while Jeremy was out there with his Apple watch recording decibels, uh, Better Street Chicago is out there with decibel readers and, and audio recorders uh, to do an actual noise study project on this, because right now the northern half of Lakeshore Drive is under reconsideration. Uh, it's 80 year old infrastructure that's crumbling and it has to be rebuilt. And currently the Illinois Department of Transportation is planning on taking this highway and turning it into interstate grade highway. Uh, we think that's inappropriate. So we took this once a year opportunity to go out when there's just silence and record what that's like, and then go back out later and record and compare what this, um, what this would be like and saw similar results to what Jeremy found. There was one spot where you're like sandwiched between right up between the highway and the lake. That's it's real narrow. It's called the concrete beach. And I stood there during bike the drive and it was like 58 decibels, which is like conversational level. And then when I went back out uh, during rush hour on a Monday morning, it was over 80 decibels which is just shocking. Um, so there's the noise pollution part of it, but it's also, you know, the fact that we've got this along our lakefront, it's our most important natural resource in Chicago, but it's one of the most important natural resources in the world. It's one of the largest bodies of fresh water, um, which is increasingly going to be, a, you know, a, a, a resource that's, you know, going away and that we need to, to preserve and that we need to ensure that it is there for generations to come and that's, you know, clean and drinkable and usable. Um, and we just don't think that building a, an eight lane highway right next to it is the right choice. Well, Michael, I can do agree you with add? you more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, this is Stacy Randecker. I asked Stacy to come on because Stacy, you're involved with Safe Street Rebels in San Francisco, and you're trying to get uh, Valencia Street pedestrianized, but also the Embarcadero is an example of removing a highway from, from a city, uh, a highway that was along their waterfront. Stacy, yeah, you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, that's one of my other projects is uh, Grand Embarcadero, um, turning that into a pedestrianized walkway. Um, I think it, that it is tragic that we think that these should be expressways besides, um, uh, you know, ringing our city and it's completely inappropriate. It really crystallized when I had the great fortune to be in Paris for a little over a week um, in 2019 and got to the park uh, that was created by changing the roadway along the Seine into a linear park. And it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, to see the transformation of this was a roadway, which everyone assumed must exist for all eternity. And now it is full of people, uh, kids playing, picnic tables, um, it, you know, just it's so full of life. I, I mean, and it's actually quite crowded <laughs> um, and it's very long. And you wonder what on earth were these people doing? Prior to this, uh, it's amazing how when you give space to people, they will fill it. And when you give space to cars, they will also fill it. And we need to be systematically disinviting cars from our cities. Um, the way Amsterdam started over 50 years ago and, uh, or, and all, well, all of the Netherlands and um, uh, Paris is, is quickly picking up the baton from there. Um, we have things completely uh, misprioritized. And I look at uh, Lakeshore Drive and Embarcadero as two peas in a pod. And giving it as an example, um, the Embarcadero used to be an elevated freeway until the Loma Prieta earthquake uh, damaged it. Um, and 
they decided to tear it down. And thank God they did. Like, if you look at the difference of what that blight was, I mean, it was just absolute squalor underneath there. And now it's uh, the Ferry Building, one of the most popular destinations in San Francisco. And, uh, but we'd like to take it a step further. And that is to get cars off of it uh, completely. I, I look at it as the, yeah, that maybe it made sense at the time, you know, they, they couldn't imagine it being totally pedestrianized from being, you know, a, an elevated freeway across the, the Bay Bridge. Um, but now it's time to take it a step further. What is your dream for Lakeshore Drive? No road at all? or have some car access? This is Michael. Um, I'm happy to speak on that. So the vision that we're presenting for the drive um, would actually uh, continue to uh, include a roadway. We have actually used the Embarcadero specifically as a model because we see it as kind of the ideal multimodal boulevard that would be very suitable for the lakefront. Um, so primarily our vision includes a few key components. One would be, um, shifting the location of the roadway footprint west so that it is actually adjacent to what is effectively the wall of the city to create a scenario in which once you cross the road, you're in the park and there's nothing between you and the lakefront but parkland. The drive actually runs quite literally down the middle of the park. So you'll enter the park and then you have to go under the road, the highway, and then you have more parking than the lakefront. You know, we are proposing wide sidewalks, um, dedicated and sufficiently wide bike lanes. A major challenge on the lakefront too is that there are no direct bike routes. You have to use the recreational trail, which uh, is not particularly useful if you're just trying to get from point A to point B. It can add quite a bit of distance because it is a, a curving route. Um, it also creates a lot of conflict between cyclists who are just trying to, like I said, to get from point A to point B versus those who are recreational that would free up the trail to be truly just a recreational route. Dedicated transit lanes are a must that is without a doubt. Um, we are proposing primarily BRT right now, but we're open to, you know, exploring what are the options for light rail as well. I think one thing that needs to be acknowledged is there are a lot of condo buildings that the drive is the only roadway access. And I think just practically speaking, you can't remove that from those residents, um, but a significant reduction in the total number of lanes. So from four lanes in each direction down to two lanes in each direction is what we're proposing we view this as kind of a really healthy balance that will still serve these neighborhoods. It's a major transportation route, but I think part of the challenge is that there's kind of this belief that it has to be a highway. All these people are driving it. If we remove this, it will create, you know, uh, a traffic scenario that will be unbelievable. And yet the data just doesn't play out to show that we've seen a number of studies that were actually conducted by the planning team that indicate a significant number of the people who are currently driving on the drive would actually shift modes if those modes were better. Anywhere from 20 to 25% of current drivers wouldn't shift, but that still leaves 75% of drivers who use the road on a regular basis would want to shift. They just don't use other modes because they're not reliable or they're not available um, or they're just not convenient for their needs. And we know that is something that can be changed. There's a lot of opportunity to uh, create new north-south parallel transit, you know, that can act as an alternative for people who are currently driving. But I think it's great that you actually mentioned Paris and Amsterdam because I actually just got back from a trip from there and I was kicking myself for not having thought to bring one of the decibel meters. Um, because I can definitely say um, in both cities, it is shocking how quiet they can be um, even along their major roadways. We think there's an inevitability that this is what the city must look like. This is what the lakefront must look like. Um, but we're here to say, no, that's not inevitable. We're here to say, this is a political thing. We're here to say there is activism and there is work that can be done that can get us to that end. We just need to be ready and willing to fight. And, you know, the first step is to get this process stopped and, and force the design teams to go back to the table and ask different questions and, you know, come with, you know, work with the community to present a vision of what we want from the lakefront, not what the Illinois Department of Transportation is saying we need from the lakefront because they use, you know, one piece of data from the federal government that is probably inaccurate. So, um, 
lots to do, um, but we have a big vision and, you know, we think this is the best vision for the city that can, that can meet everybody's needs and, and make for a better lakefront toll. You're so right. It's critical that what you're saying, the, are the right questions being asked? The whole notion that if you take away lanes from cars and it will be traffic get in or whatever is the wrong question to be asking when the body count is over 46,000 now um, in the United States, when we know that air pollution is choking and killing us um, uh, literally as humans and then um, poisoning the water that it, it's running by as well in this case and climate change. I mean, I don't know how much more evidence you need. How do we get the people on the bus, on the train, to bike, to walk, to carpool, whatever it may be? Those are the questions that need to be asked. And those are the, that everything needs to be reframed. The whole idea of, oh, we have to do a traffic study. Oh, we have to see what will happen to cars and traffic. Expletive that. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. it just is nonsense. And we have to get them to understand that the, questions they've been asking forever are wrong and are absolutely almost immoral to be asked when you have this level of evidence. Not only are they forcing these ridiculous traffic studies that create an inevitable outcome where they say, okay, well, we need to make more space for cars. As I mentioned, they don't even ask about what happens when you start integrating these alternatives in if we keep throwing money at car infrastructure, we'll never be able to provide those alternatives and people will never change. We can't, we can't beat people into getting on a bus. That's not fair. The money is such a critical point as well. I would love to know the cost of making this an interstate uh, style road and roadway and the cost of changing it to two lanes. And then also I would put on the health effects for the people that live around there um, what it's doing to the water, et cetera. We have to start taking those costs into account as well. You will have more than enough money for all the buses, for new train lines, for a light rail, whatever you wish, um, if we just stop building you know, those huge scars across mm-hmm. our, our landscape to take heavy traffic. And highway infrastructure is just so expensive. Do we really want to spend all this money on a project that is going to cement a highway future for the next, you know, four or five, six generations of Chicagoans, or do we want to envision a different future for ourselves? It is an iconic drive in Chicago. And, um, you know, people, uh, especially people who drive, have a lot of feelings about it. Um, It's important to think about, you know, what are the ways that we bring those people along, like Michael mentioned, this this will help everyone. You know, there are people sometimes that will need to drive, and and we're not saying that you know we we're not we're going to have no drivers in, in a scenario, no cars. The Netherlands is one of the best places in the world to drive because the only people who are driving are those that need to be driving. And they've shifted, you know, the mode. So there's not really any traffic. And so, you know, th- these are the benefits that 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 we can bring by kind of de, uh, de-highwayifying um, this road. And I think another way that we can help um, show that, you know, bike the drive is great. And I think the people that experience it are kind of, it opens their eyes a little bit, but it needs to be more than once a year that, that we um, take our roads and and give it back to um, people who who walk and cycle. So um, setting up a program like Cyclovia um, in Bogota, there's also one in, in Mexico City where they shut down the roads uh, for for you know one day a week. I think that's a great you know place to start to actually expand bike the drive um, and have more opportunities for people to experience it. Even the people in the condos living nearby who might be scared about, you know, getting rid of um, their their uh, highway next to them um, that own a car while experiencing the just the quiet. You know, I think that they're just so used to having that sound, they've become desensitized to it. But I I think that that's a really important way to um, start bringing people along to to a better 
um, design for a lakefront. This is an all hands on deck moment. This is a huge lift. I, 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 it is important that we emphasize how much work this is going to be and, and whether, whether you think it was lucky that an earthquake uh, knocked down a highway in San Francisco or not, they had a, a natural disaster to take advantage of the moment, which we don't have. And I don't necessarily know if we should be hoping for that. We don't, we don't want an earthquake here in Chicago. Well, we have a climate disaster. Yeah, so. we have a climate disaster, but that's not going to knock down the highway. That's not going to present yes. uh, a situation in which the lake we can is have this trying conversation. To <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we need, we're going to need everybody involved in this. We're going to need everybody talking about this. We're going to need people making sure that this is a political issue. This is an issue that elected officials are aware of, and they're aware that, you know, people are going to be considering this when they're hitting the ballot box or when they're doing advocacy or when they're making donations or whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, everybody get involved. Um, seek out uh, assistance, seek out allies. Uh, if, if you can't give time, give money. If you can't give money, reshare a post on social media, whatever it is. All right. Thanks. Uh, Better Streets, Jeremy Frisch, Michael Rogers, and Kyle Lucas. And thank you, Stacy Randecker from San Francisco, all for joining in. Thanks for having us, Nick. It was a great Thanks talk. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, everyone. Next, we talk to Melinda Shaw and PJ in Northampton. Melinda designed and built mobile shelters for the unhoused population called Humanity Pods. Melinda Shaw, uh, Northampton area, local Florence. Florence, yes, for probably the last 25, 30 years almost. And you've done this amazing thing. You've made these Humanity Pods. Yeah, I was inspired by a design by a guy named Paul Elkins who came up with the Nomad bicycle pod, bicycle camper pod. Um, And I started creating these and enlisting people in teams to make them, build them for the houseless community. And we're looking at one right now. Yeah, this one's been here on the bike path for a while. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still being used or not. Uh, Yeah, I'm not either. I haven't seen any activity. I, I see nobody here. It just, it, it appears to be where it is, and there it is. It's Humanity Pods, Hope on Wheels, indeed. Oh, yeah, Hope on Wheels, indeed, that's for sure. You actually lived in one. I, I, I still have one, hopefully. It's still on private property, put away. And my friend Jennifer said, okay, PJ, you can move it to my house and put it in the side of my building and we'll put a tarp over it so it looks like nobody's there. Mm-hmm. Keep it uh, discreet. We don't want to attract attention. All right. Pod is comfy. Crawl in the pod. Sleeping bag. Sleeping bag too. Or a little blanket. Humphy comfy. For me, personally speaking, it's like something out of a dream. And it's like 1977. You can go to sleep. Go to heaven. <laughs> sleep tight. Oh, definitely. You can, you can sit up in it. You can sit up and you just scoot your butt all the way back. Yep. You've got a, a skylight above you. got windows on each side. It's very comfortable. Um, I outfitted them all with four-inch um, memory foam pads, gave everybody sleeping bags and pillows, and there are two cupboards inside there to keep your things. There's also cargo nets inside. There are retractable uh, legs that go on it that somebody must have broken off of this one um, but that keeps it sturdy the wheels are puncture proof you don't have to worry about changing the tires if you 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 can't get a flat on those wheels Um, and the doors are lockable from the inside or out you got the design from paul elkins yes but and they and they make the nomad camper Mm -hmm. how'd you get involved so I was working at a downtown church, and during the during COVID, I was still working there, and a lot of folks that didn't have homes uh, were sleeping on and around the church. So I would greet them every day, and I had a lot of people also come to the door and ask if we had food or clothing or anything warm, coats, sleeping bags. So I got involved with asking the community for those things, sort of collecting them, giving them out. Uh, And once I left that job, um, I decided to start this organization and ended up creating a 501c3 for it. 
uh, and enlisting teams of people to build these camper pods because I felt like it would address a short-term need that the city was not uh, addressing. And I wanted to give people independence to move around. Um, they came with a bicycle for them to pull it. And, um, you know, from there, I gave out probably eight or nine of them last year. Uh, and I'm not sure where they all are right now. I've got one at my house that was uh, used just recently by a couple. It was a larger one that I made. I put the wheels on the outside so it could fit two people more easily. Um, and now I'm, I'm in the process of handing out materials for people to build other kinds of structures that Paul Elkins also designed, teepees or octagonal structures or whatever they choose to make out mm -hmm. of the coroplast. You're, you also have the materials, uh, you've told me, to make more pods, but you're not making them anymore. Do you want to explain that? Um, they're very labor-intensive. That's why I enlisted folks to get teams together. Uh, I estimated that it takes me 40 to 60 hours to make one, although I built a lot of the trailers ahead of time, so then I would start with that, as well as the dome part. I've got three or four of the dome parts at my house. You know, they could be put together relatively quickly if I had a, a team of people. Um, I am not personally making them anymore. It requires space and time that I don't have at this point, but I would certainly be willing to um, help other folks that want to put together some of these as projects. So valuable experiment? I think it's a valuable experiment. It certainly has caused a lot of people to stop and think about, you know, I had them downtown for a couple weekends in a row just showing people what I had and trying to raise money to make more of them last summer. And I, I think it brings awareness. I think even just having this sitting here brings awareness to folks um, that there are alternatives to a, a really, I mean, it, it kind of does look junky out here right now, but it doesn't have to look junky for people to have alternative places to sleep. Um, and I think the community could get on board with other ideas to be more innovative. I think there are a lot of ways that we could look at housing in a more innovative way than just, you know, using the housing, the building codes that we have that are restrictive in a lot of ways. How did you fund all this, Melinda? Donations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people were very generous last year. Um, they would probably continue to be generous if I could produce more um, at this point. I think that we need more of a, um, a group approach to it, um, agency approach to it that says, hey, yeah, we want these. I mean, I've had calls from other shelters saying, uh, can we rent them? <laughs> like, no, sorry, we don't have enough to rent, and that would be weird. We, we give them to people <laughs> with a bicycle. Um, so I think that they could be more mass-generated if we had enough bodies to do that and energy behind it and funding, obviously. Finding spaces to put them is a problem, right? Well, that's absolutely it. It needs some kind of oversight. It needs to have some kind of either agency oversight or internal government by the people who live there. Something. And yeah, there are, absolutely. There are a lot of tiny house communities that do the same kind of governmental structure within their people that are there. It's just going to take energy, and I did reach out. All right. Well, if anybody wants to get in touch with you about your ideas, about the pods, Humanity Pods? Humanitypods.org. Uh, my phone number's on there. You can find out anything you want um, and reach out to me using the email address that's on there. Okay. Thanks, Melinda. You're welcome. Thanks, PJ. Oh, yeah. What, are you kidding me? It's a pleasure to be involved in the project. I'd like to do more. I've just been having a rough winter. The pod itself, the structure, everything is nearly perfect. Mm -hmm. The problem is where do you put it? Mm -hmm. This is secure here, it looks secure, but it's still downtown Northampton. Anything can happen at night and it does happen. It's just insecurity. They need better security. The pod is a fantastic concept. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I always wanted something like this, always. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work.
We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.